This is Daf Yud in Masechet Megillah. We are on the bottom of Daf Tet Amud Bet. It is at the Mishnah, at the bottom of Daf Tet Amud Bet. It says, en ben bama There's no difference between a large Bama and a small Bama. Now, these were altars that existed before the creation of the Bet HaMikdash. Before the Bet HaMikdash was built, the Jewish people would offer sacrifices to Hashem on Bamot. There were two kinds of Bamot. There was something called the Bama Gdola, which was the communal uh, Bama, the, the national Bama that would be in Nov and Giv'on. And uh, that was sort of the uh, extension of the Mishkan that had existed and traveled with the Jewish people in the Midbar. And then you had uh, Bamot Ketanot, you had private Bamot or local Bamot that people could bring Korbanot on uh, independently of the national Bama. But once the Beit HaMikdash was built, of course, there was no more permission to have Bamot and everyone could only bring uh, Korbanot legally uh, in the Beit HaMikdash. So the Mishnah says there's no difference between these two Bamot when they didn't have a Beit HaMikdash yet, Ella Psachim, except for Psachim. Psachim had to be brought only on the Bamagdola, only on the large Bama, which was the communal national one, not on an individual one. Zeaklal, uh, this is the rule, says the Mishnah. Koshu, Nidav Nidav, anything which is personally uh, a personal obligation, either neder, meaning a vow that one takes upon oneself to bring a private korban, or nidav, a, a, a korban that a person donates, decides of their own free will to contribute, anything like that, uh, can be brought on a private bama. Anything that is uh, not a private korban that is independently uh, committed to cannot be brought on a bama meaning to say any obligatory korban that we don't create the obligation, but it is an obligation that we have uh, from the Torah, that type of a korban cannot be brought on the private bama, only would be able to be brought on the uh, communal bama. So the Gemara says, Psachim vitulo. the Mishnah suggested that the only thing that you could bring uh, only on the national bama and not on a private bama was Psachim, but that can't be the case because uh, as Rashi says, that anything which is not a private, uh, a committed, a, a privately given korban uh, can't be, uh, you know, it cannot be brought on a private bama. But on the national bama, they would bring the obligatory korbanot, the daily korbanot, the musafim, and so on. And Rashi says, and the Gemara assumes at this point, that they would also bring communal korbanot that didn't have a fixed time, such as cases where the community committed a sin and therefore has to bring a communal uh, korban. The assumption of the Gemara is that those would be brought on the large bama as well, but certainly the regular, daily, and seasonal korbanot that have fixed times were brought on the Bamagdola. So, what do you mean only psachim are brought on the Bamagdola, the national Bama? El Ema Ke'en Psachim. What it meant was things that are like psachim, meaning something that has a fixed time, which is an obligation that has a fixed time, that was, is what is brought on the national Bama. Anything which is privately donated, committed to, that could be brought on a private Bama. Mani, who is the opinion represented now? Rabbi Shimon, it's Rabbi Shimon. Even on the communal bama, all that was brought were were korbanot pesach and the obligations that have a fixed time. But uh, but obligations that don't have a fixed time, such as the sin offering of the community, not a musaf of a holiday or a daily korban, but the sin offering of the community, that was not brought on a bamagdola either. That could only be brought in the Beit HaMikdash, not on a national bama. 
the uh, the Mishnah says in Ben Shiloh, the Yerushalayim. Shiloh was a semi Beit Hamikdash. It was a uh, it was a relatively fixed place where the Mishkan remained for quite a long time, and in certain ways was treated almost like the status that Yerushalayim had later. The difference between the two is when you would come to Shiloh. Uh, you could eat Kodashim Kalim, the types of Korbanot that later on you would have to eat in Yerushalayim, you could eat them, uh, or Maser Sheni, which was the type of tithe that you would bring to Yerushalayim and eat in Yerushalayim. Any, from anywhere you could see the Mishkan, you could, you could consider yourself Lifnei Hashem, before Hashem, it would be like the equivalent to Yerushalayim, later on, Yerushalayim, Lifnei When once the Bet HaMikdash was built, the definition of Lifnei Hashem was uh, within the wall of Yerushalayim. And in both cases, the uh, the korbanot that have to be eaten on the premises of the Beit HaMikdash had to be eaten inside the curtains of the Beit HaMikdash. After the destruction of Shiloh, there was a time where bamot were again permitted. But after Yerushalayim, there was never another permission to have any kind of bama. So uh, although the, after the destruction of Shiloh, they could go back to having bamot for a while until the Bet HaMikdash eventually was built or until the Mishkan was established in another place, they were not allowed to, uh, meaning during the times of Novigivon, they were allowed to have uh, bamot in various different places. During the times of Shiloh, they weren't allowed to have bamot in various different places. Only the central Shiloh, which was almost like a precursor to Yerushalayim. It was fully like the Bet HaMikdash, except that it wasn't the absolutely permanent place. But they weren't allowed to be Bamot. Once it was destroyed, they were allowed to have permanent, uh, per, private Bamot again until the Bet HaMikdash was built. Once the Bet HaMikdash was built, even after it was destroyed, no more independent Bamot were allowed. Now the Gemara says, Rabbi Yitzchak Yitzchak said, I heard that they bring Korbanot in Bet Chonyo nowadays. Now Bet Chonyo was a Bet HaMikdash facsimile that was created in Mitzrayim by the son of Shimon HaTzadik. There's a long story about that in Masa how that came to be, but the point was that he built the Beit Hamikdash, and this was this is a known thing. This is known in history that there was a sort of a Beit Hamikdash built there where korbanot were offered, and because uh, Savar that shows you that he, that Rabbi Yitzchak was saying that Beit Chonyo lava Beit Avodazarahi. That obviously he didn't think the house of Chonyo was a Beit Avodazarah, and in fact, historically speaking, we know that it was not. It was actually meant to be a Jewish house of worship. Obviously, Rabbi Yitzchak, if he's telling you that legitimate korbanot were being brought in Mitzrayim, in the Bet Chonyo, in this renegade Bet HaMikdash that was established by the son of Shimon HaTzadik, then obviously he holds that the Kiddushah of Yerushalayim was not forever because after the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, he held that it was okay for, uh, for somebody to create the Bet Chonyo, an alternative Bet HaMikdash in Mitzrayim. So, the, uh, so therefore, once it was destroyed, you were allowed to have this, uh, this uh, Bet HaMikdash in Yerushalayim and it was legitimate. That's why he said you could offer Korbanot in Bet Chonyo nowadays and it wouldn't be a problem, said Rabbi Yitzchak. It says you have not come yet you have not come yet to the rest and to the inheritance. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu said to the Jewish people when he was explaining to them why they were allowed to bring korbanot in any place they wanted while they were in the Midbar, but not once they come to Israel. He says, you haven't come yet to the rest and the inheritance. Menuchaz or Shiloh. Menuchaz is talking about Shiloh. That was the first place where uh, when they had the Mishkan at Shiloh, they weren't allowed to offer korbanot in any other place. And Nachalaz or Yerushalayim. Nachalah means Yerushalayim. We compare the Nachalah, the final inheritance of Yerushalayim, to the Menuchah, to the rest of Shiloh. 
just like the Menuchah, the rest, which was Shiloh, there was permission afterwards, meaning that while Shiloh was standing, you weren't allowed to have any other Bamot, but once it was destroyed, you were allowed to go back to having independent Mizbechot throughout Israel again. Same thing with Yerushalayim, once it's destroyed, you're allowed to have Bamot in various places again, and that would include Mitzrayim, he's saying. Now, Amrule, they said, Amarta, they said to, they said to Rabbi Tzchak, did you really say that? Amarleo, lo. So he said, nope, I never said such a thing. I never said you could legitimately bring korbanot in Mitzrayim. It was misquoted. I was misquoted. Amar Elohim, Amar by God, said Rava. He said it. And I learned it directly from him. I know he did say it. He's just retracting now and claiming he never said that, but he did say it. Why did he retract? Because of what Rav Mori raised, the objection he raised, Rav Mori said, that this, the sanctity of Shiloh has, after it, permission to build Bamot again. But once he found this Brita, he realized, once he found uh, Rav Mori's uh, statement, he realized that uh, after Yerushalayim, there was no more permission to build Bamot. And moreover, we learned in the Mishnah, Mishabar Yerushalayim, Neswar Bamot, it says in the Mishnah explicitly that once they came to Yerushalayim, Bamot were pro- prohibited and they would never again be allowed to be created. There's no permission for Bamot after Yerushalayim. It was the ultimate Nachala. So Nachala is not compared to Menucha. In other words, the final destination of the Shekhinah is Yerushalayim and there will never again be Bamot. Uh, we'll never be able to bring Korbanot except in Yerushalayim from then on. Tanahi, it's actually Machloket Tanaim Detani within the Nabaita. And uh, as it says on the side, that actually should say Ditnan, this is actually a Mishnah. Amr Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer said, Shamati Kishayobonin Baichal. I heard that when they were building the Echal, uh, when they were building the Bet Mikdash, uh, they made curtains around the area of the Echal, of the Kodesh, and curtains around the area of the, of the Azara, the, the courtyard, to differentiate one from the other. But in, when it came to the Kodesh, they put the curtains, around, they built around the outside the, of the curtain. The curtain marked a perimeter and they built around it. They didn't want to step into that area. But the curtain in the Azara, in the courtyard, was around the outside of where they were building. They were building within the curtain. Uh, of the Azorah because it was less holy they would stand in there and they would build there I heard said Rabbi Yosho that you can bring you can bring Korbanot even though there's no actual physical Beit HaMikdash and you can also eat Kodshe Kodeshim you can eat Holy of Holy Korbanot that have to be eaten in the Beit HaMikdash even though there are no curtains and you can also eat the Kodashim Kalim, the lighter kind of Korbanot like Shlamim that have to be eaten in Yerushalayim, or Maser Sheni, the tithe that's brought the, uh, from the produce that has to be eaten in Yerushalayim, brought to Yerushalayim and eaten there. Even though there's no wall around Yerushalayim, you could still eat in the area of Yerushalayim. Because the sanctification of Yerushalayim was, was uh, at its time and forever. And so even though the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, we, it still has the Kedushah. So what do you see? So so the assumption is that what's the machloket here in the Mishnah Rabbi Eliezer is saying that they had to put curtains to delineate the different areas because without those cur- those curtains were serving in place of the actual Bet HaMikdash in place of the structure and because he held that you had to have a structure there to create Bet HaMikdash status to be able to bring korbanot eat all the korbanot do all the mitzvot and so on Rabbi Yoshua is saying no I, and why would Rabbi Eliezer say that? Because he says that the Kiddushav, the original Bayit, the Beit HaMikdash, the first one was gone. So when they wanted to reinstate the Kiddushav, the second Beit HaMikdash, they had to put up curtains at least or some kind of, uh, some kind of, uh, dividers. 
to show there was a structure there. Rabbi Yoshua comes along and says, no, you don't even need a bayit. You don't even need a structure. The place is holy forever. So that implies that Rabbi Eliezer didn't think the place was holy forever. He thought he had to put some structure there to allow Korbanot to be brought. How do you know that that's what Rabbi Eliezer said? It could very well be that according to Rabbi Eliezer, also uh, the Kiddushah of Yerushalayim is forever and the Kiddushah of Harabayit is forever. There's no contradiction between the two of them. Rabbi Eliezer was making an observation about how they built the Beit HaMikdash, that they put curtains up. Rabbi Yoshua is making an observation that you're allowed to bring Korbanot even without a structure. They don't contradict. And if you'll say, then why does Rabbi Eliezer have to point out that they put up curtains if they're not necessary to create the sanctity of the Beit HaMikdash? Let's do it the Be'alma. It's just for respect and modesty so that the things are not being done out in the open. That's all. But actually, there's no machloket between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua that the Kedushah of Yerushalayim and Harabayit is forever. Ki Rather, there's a different set of Tanaim that argue about this. Titani will end in a baita. Amar Rabbi Yishmael, Rabbi Yossi. Why did the rabbis identify only specific cities as those that were um, walled in the days of Yoshua bin Nun? Since there are certain halachot of... Um, uh, that pertain only to houses in, or, or when it comes to Kriyat HaMegillah, we know uh, cities that are uh, that were walled from the times of Yoshua bin Nun read on the 15th instead of the 14th. But there are also other halachot, such as the idea of Batei houses in such cities have different halachot with respect to their sale and their redemption and so on and so forth. So they only counted nine cities in total, right? What's the reason why they counted those? That uh, because when the people came back from Bavel, from the exile, these were the ones they found from the original, uh, from the original walled cities of Yoshua's time. And they sanctified them. But the other ones, um, uh, from the time that the land lost its sanctity, those cities lost, lost their sanctity. So obviously that means that since the people who came back from Bavel had to re-sanctify these cities, that means that they lost their sanctity. The sanctity is not forever. But we raised an objection to that. How could you say there's only nine cities that were walled in the days of Yoshua ben Nun? It says that there were 60 cities, the whole strip of Argov, and it also says that all these cities were fortified cities. There were, there were so many cities um, in the uh, that were that existed in the times of the kibush, in the times of the of the conquering of Eretz Yisrael and Yoshua, that are mentioned in the Torah after the war of uh, the war against Sichon and Og, all of these cities there were sixty uh, fortified cities alone on that side of the Jordan. So how could you say that there are not more cities that were walled in the times of Yoshua? Why did they count only the nine cities that are counted, the Chachamim counted? Because when the uh, exiles came back to Israel after the exile of Bavil, these are the ones that they found and they sanctified them. Kiddushum, what do you mean they sanctified them? Right, didn't you just say that they didn't have to because it says in the Mishnah itself that they didn't need to sanctify it any city that you know by tradition was walled in the days of Yoshua Benun um, is uh, 
because in that teaching itself, in that Brayta itself, it says at the end that any city that you know was walled in the times of Yoshua bin Nun, did, as we're about to read, did not require resanctification. It automatically, it's considered a walled city from the times of Yoshua bin Nun. They didn't need to sanctify it. They just found them and counted them. Not only these cities, but any city that you know. You have a tradition. From your ancestors, that it was walled in the times of Yoshua bin Nun. All the mitzvot of a walled city from the times of Yoshua Benun will apply. Because the original sanctification of Yerushalayim and all of the cities of Israel and all of the holy places not only was for its time, but was for all time. And that is the, uh, the end of the Baita. So you see from there that there's a machloket. There's only one problem. It's the same person in both statements because the first statement was by Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Yossi where he said that the, that the Kedushah was lost and only the places that they re-sanctified when they came back from Bavel count as sanctified. And then the second, uh, in the second Baita that's quoted here, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Yossi says the opposite, that any place that you know was, uh, was walled in the days of Yoshua Benun didn't read, re- need re-sanctification. So how could it be? So we see there's a machloket, but how could they both be attributed to the same person? Clearly, there were two students of Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Yossi who had conflicting understandings of what he said and reported his teaching Differently, alternatively, it could be that one was misattributed to Rabbi Ishmael Rabbi Yossi and was actually Rabbi Elazar Rabbi Yossi. The Tanik, as we learned in a bright, in fact, that Rabbi Elazar Rabbi Yossi Omer that the word says it says that any city that has a wall, um, it's written in the Torah that any city that has a wall, its houses have unique properties and unique uh, halachic uh, principles that apply to them. But it says lo with an aleph. Lo means doesn't have a wall, does not. So, it's written Lamed Vav Aleph, meaning that Lo means two things. It has one and it doesn't have one. Meaning to say that, because um, it's written as Lamed Aleph, but it's read as Lamed Vav. So that means to say that both are true. It had a wall at some point, even if it doesn't have it now. So that opinion is the opinion that says that uh, it doesn't matter what the status is currently, as long as in the times of Yoshua Binun it was sanctified as a one of the walled cities, that's enough. We don't need a resanctification. And and that would be Rabbi Elazar Rabbi Yossi, not Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Yossi. So it could be a machloket between the two of them. In any case, there are two opinions, two views on this issue of whether the Kedusha still holds or not. Now we get back to Megillat Esther, and for the next several Dapim, we're going to be going through Drasha after Drasha of the text of the Megillah. Lots of Agadah here, lots of stories, very interesting. And it was in the days of Achashverosh. Amar Rabbi Levi, v'yitem Rabbi Yonatan. Rabbi Levi said something it would say was Rabbi Yonatan. We have a tradition, man Sheikh Nesadakbullah, going back to the men of the great assembly. Anytime it says Vaihi, and it was, it means wailing, it means sadness. Vaihi is like woe is to me. Such as Vaihi Bimeachashverosh, have a Haman. In the days of Bachashverosh, have Haman. Vaihi Bimeshavota Shofatim, a very famous Vaihi is in the beginning of Megillat Rut, in the days of the judging of the judges. Vaihi Havara'av, there was a famine. So that's the sad thing. Vaihi Kechel Adam, Larov, when it says that man became numerous on the face of the earth, it says Vaihi, and then Vayar Hashem Kirabat Adam. That was when Hashem saw how evil people had become and he had to bring the Mabul, the flood, to wipe everyone out. Vaihi Binos Amikedem. 
and it was when they traveled from the east, and that's to, and right after it says Vahi, they were traveling. Then they decided to make the Migdal Bavel, which was a great sin. In the days of Amrafel, there was a Milchama that was in the time of Abraham, the, the war of the four and the five kings. And it was when Yoshua was in Yericho, and, a, and the, an angel came with a sword outstretched. And uh, we know the whole vision that was mentioned earlier in this Gemara, that... Uh, that uh, he had this vision of this angel who came to him uh, in the middle of the night when he was walking around. And after that, we know that Vayashem et Yoshua Vayimalu b'nei Yisrael. Oh, I'm sorry, that, I, I, I skipped the part. Right, Vayhi b'yimot Yoshua b'yuricho. Right, Yoshua was in Yuricho and v'charbosh l'fav yado. And right after it says Vayhi, that Yoshua was in Yericho, it says that the, the angel had an outstretched uh, sword, which is a type of a threat. Vayhi Hashem et Yoshua. Hashem was with Yoshua, but it says Vayhi, Vayhi Muluv Neisel. And that was right around the time of the sin of Achan, that he misappropriated things from Yericho and therefore caused um, terrible tragedy to happen to the Jewish people and the war at Ai, which happened after. Vayhi Ishachad Menor Ramatayim. There was a man from Ramatayim, and it says the word Vayhi again. What happened that was bad there? Kiet Chanaev Vasher Sagarachma. Vashem Sagarachma. Because it says that he loved Chana, but Chana was barren. So it talks about the barrenness of Chana. Vayhi Kizakin Shmuel. It talks about Shmuel getting older, and it says, and it mentions that his sons did not follow in his way, so there's something sad there. It says David was successful in everything that he did. He used the word Vahi. Hashem was with him. Vahi Shaul oyened David. But then right away it says Shaul started to have a bad eye against David and hate him. Vahi ki yashav and it was when the king sat in his house. This is talking about David Melech. He immediately after that got the news that he wasn't going to be allowed to build the Beit Hamikdash. So Vahi again is a uh, hint that something bad is going to happen. Vachti Vahi bayom Hashemini. Doesn't it say Vahi Bayom Hashemini when it comes to the dedication of the Mishkan? Vahi is good. Vetanya Oto Ayom Aitasim Chalfnei Hakadosh Baruch Hu Kiyom 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 Shinivrabo Shemayim Baaretz that that day was a, a joy before Hashem like the day that the heavens and earth were created. So how could you say it was a sad day? Vaktivacha Vahi Bayom Hashemini because it was it says regarding the creation of the Mishkan on the and it was on the eighth day. Uchtivatam it says over there. And it was morning one day, meaning it's a reference to the creation. But even though it's true that it was a happy day in terms of the creation of the Mishkan, construction of the Mishkan, and dedication of the Mishkan, Nadav Nevihu died, so it was sad. What about when it says Vayhi? At the building of the Bet Hamikdash by Shlomo, and it was when Yaakov saw Rachel. What about it says, and it was evening and it was morning one day, and the second day of creation, and the third day. There's so many cases of Vayhi that are good. So how could you say every Vayhi is bad? You're right. Vayhi by itself could go either way. But vayhi bimei in eloshon When is it a tradition that it's something bad? Vayhi bimei, and it was in the days is always an introduction to something bad. Chamisha vayhi bimei havu. There were five cases of it in Tanakh. Vayhi bimei achashverosh. Of course, that was bad. The beginning of the reign of achashverosh. Vayhi bimei shofot hashofatim. The days of the judging of the judges, which is the introduction to the famine in the times of Ruth. Vayhi bimei amrafel, and it was in the days of amrafel. That was when the four kings and five kings had a war. Vayhi bimei achaz. Vayhi bimei yo yakim. And then you have, of course, Achaz and Yehoiakim, both of whom lived at times of terrible tragedy where bad things were happening uh, to uh, the Jewish people, uh, destruction and eventually exile. So these are all bad periods in Jewish history. 
and therefore are introduced by vihi bimei. And it was in the days. We have another tradition coming back from our ancestors. That Amot and Amatya, meaning Amot, who was Yishayahu's uh, uh, father, because his name was Yishayahu ben Amot. Um, Amatya, the king of Yehuda, they were brothers. So actually, Yishayahu was the nephew of the king Amatya, according to our tradition. Uchtiv. Um, it says Yishayahu's vision he was the son of Amotz meaning that they were he was actually part of the royal family so to speak Yishayahu was we have a tradition in our hands from our ancestors says Rabbi Levi that that the place of the Aron itself of the uh, the holy ark did not take up any space that the Aron that Moshe Rabbeinu made, there were 10 Amot to every direction around it. And yet, in the Kodesh HaKodeshim, was only 20, uh, the, uh, it was only a length of 20 Amot. And it says regarding the Kruvim uh, on top of that Aron, right? So we, we know that there's only 20 Amot across. The entire Kodesh Hakodeshim, and yet it says that uh, that that uh, uh, that, uh, uh, that the wings of the uh, Kuvim, it says uh, w- with regard to the Kuvim that their wings were extended. That each one of the Kuvim, its wing uh, extended ten amot. Now we have on the side a uh, a correction that um, hold on that so that's a different thing. Um, let me see what is the correction that it has here. Uh, okay, but either way, yeah. Okay, so the point is that the the uh, that the wings of the kovim were spread out ten amot. Uh, so where did the Aron itself fit, right? Now the the thing, the problem with this uh, is that this pasuk actually doesn't exist because in the uh, in Sefer Melachim it doesn't say that they had uh, ten amot, the wings of the Kovim. It was only five amot. Um, it says that there were actually five each and there was ten amot from the tip of one wing to the tip of the wing of the other one. So if you look at the, uh, uh, if you have uh, one of the Gemarot that has the corrections, it says that, um, uh, that this Pasuk doesn't really appear anywhere in the, uh, in the Tanakh because uh, this, this Pasuk is, an, is quoted here with a, a misquote. The actual, in the actual Tanakh it says, amot amot shenit. amot That there are actually ten amot from the end of one, from the tip of the, uh, right side of the, uh, of the kruv to the kruv on the left. In other words, all the way across was ten amot. In any case, where did the Aron fit? Right? Rather, you must say that it stood, uh, miraculously. Uh, it doesn't take up any space because it, how could it be that there were ten amot to every side? If you see that the uh, that the uh, there were only twenty amot across, and these the wings of the kovim were sticking out. Uh, if not ten amot to each side, then at least five amot to each side. It wouldn't work out unless miraculously the aron did not take itself up any space. 
Um, and of course, where the Gemara quotes, the Pasuk that the Gemara quotes, which seems to be an error, would suggest that there were actually 20 emot across the uh, Kruvim, in which case there would be no space at all. Um, the Gemara says, Generally speaking, when the rabbis would give drashot on books of Tanakh, they would open up with a preamble to the drasha. And when he would give a, his drashot on uh, the Megillah itself, he would start from here. It says that I will cut off from Bavel. Uh, that I will cut off Shem which is like a name, Ushar Remnant Venin Vanechid, and uh, descendants, basically, from Bavel will be cut off. So the Shem uh, Zektav, what does it mean, name? It means their writing will disappear. She'ar Zelashon, that's talking about their languages. Nin ze Malchut, Nin means their kingdom will disappear. Venechid Zovashti, and Nechid, the grandchild, that means Vashti. In other words, Vashti was from Bavel, actually, originally in her origin, and that's and so her death, her downfall was the uh, completion of the judgment against the kingdom of Bavel, according to Rabbi Yonatan's drasha. Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmani padach la pitcha lahay parashat ha-mecha. Whenever Rabbi Shmuel bar Nachmani would speak about Megidat Esther, he would open it up with the following drasha. Tachat ha-natzutz yale v'rosh, v'tachat ha-sirpat yale adas, is a pasuk from Yishayahu, beautiful pasuk. And the place of the thorns will come up v'rosh, and in the, a beautiful uh, cedar, and in the place of a sirpat and other kinds of a thorny or thettle, whatever it's called, nettles or some kind of a weed type of a plant, yale adas, a hadas will come up, a, uh, a, a myrtle will come. Tachat natsutz, tachat, what does tachat natsutz mean? In place of the thorns, tachat hamanarasha, shasa atzmo avodazra. In place of Haman, the wicked man who made himself into an idol, dichti, uvcholana tzutim, uvcholana lulim. Um, th- this is a reference to a pasuk that is that uh, really is talking about different kinds of thorns and thistles as well, but it's understood as re- re- referring to idolatry. The word seems so na'atzotz is a reference to Haman making himself an idol. Yale v'rosh, zem mordechai, shenikra rosh. What does it mean, v'rosh? It means mordechai, it's called rosh lechola b'samim, the head of all of the fragrant spices. Shinemar v'atak kach lecha b'samim. Because when Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu to take the spices for the b'samim, He says, um, take for yourselves the best, or take for yourself the best spices. Mordechor, which is the first one. What is umetargaminan morid dechi? Pure more. So, more dechai is referring to that spice that is the head of the spices, the first of the spices. So, berosh means the, the first of the spices, meaning more dechai, is going to rise up to replace the idolatrous haman. Tachad asirpad, tachad vashti, harisha'ah, bat berosh nebuchadnezzar, shesaraf refidat bet Hashem. So, asirpad is a reference to the bet HaMikdash that was destroyed by the ancestor of vashti, the wicked. Who was, since um, she was a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, who burnt Refidat Beit Hashem, the uh, the roof of the house of Hashem, like it says in Shir Hashirim, the the ceiling is made of gold, right? So it's so Sirpad. They're saying as a drasha is a reference to the, even though it really means a kind of a weed or a kind of a bad plant. Um, that's being replaced by a good plant. It's saying that the bad plant was Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed the Beit Hamikdash. Yale Hadas, in place of that wicked uh, descendant, would be a Hadas, will be a Myrtle. Zoha Esther Atzadekit Shenikret Hadasa. This is Esther the righteous who's called Hadasa. Shenemar Vayomenet Hadasa, as we because it says uh, that uh, Mordechai was taking care of Hadasa, which was actually her Hebrew name was Hadasa. Esther was her Persian name. Vayal Hashem 
l'shem. And it says they will, it will be for Hashem a name, Zomikram Megillah, meaning that uh, when it talks about how the Hadas will replace the bad plant, and here we're saying it means Esther is going to replace Vashti, and we're saying it means Mordechai is going to replace Aman. It says Vayai l'shem l'shem, and it will be for Hashem a name. What does that mean? Zomikram Megillah. Yeshayahu says it will be for an eternal sign never cut off these are the days of Purim in other words that Pasuk in Yeshayahu according to the way that Rabbi Shmoban Achmani would interpret it is a reference to how Esther replaced Vashti Mordechai replaced Haman and as a result of that we have an eternal testimony to God's greatness in the form of the Megillah and we have an eternal observance um, that will never be forgotten, an eternal sign of Hashem's deliverance, which is the celebration of Purim. And as we're going to see, many of the drashot here, basically, Mesechet Megillah is, is remarkable in that it provides us with a set of Midrashim and Agadot on almost the entire, or pretty much the entire Megillat Esther, uh, much of which appears also in Midrash Rabbah of Esther. So it provides us with really a, a study of the entire text of the Megillah, line by line, with all of the Midrashim and Agadot that go along. Um, there are, of course, more Midrashim and Agadot beyond what the Gemara brings, but the Gemara brings a wealth of Midrashim and Agadot on the Megillah, which makes it an especially fa- fascinating several dapim to study. And one of the ways, and the, uh, the opening study is what each rabbi would give as their introductory Dvar Torah before they embarked upon an analysis of the text of the Megillah. And that's what we've begun to see here.